you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Hey there, my name is Reed. I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn Montrose. Really great uh, and grateful that you are uh, joining us this Easter Sunday. Um, if this is your first time gathering with us, or maybe you've gathered a few times with us uh, in the past, want to say welcome. Um, and if you're interested in connecting here in a, in a deeper way, like we say at Sojourn often, the church is not um, simply an event to attend or a building uh, to enter, but the church is a people to belong to. So we'd love to extend that invitation to you uh, that Cole made at the beginning of the gathering. If you want to check out the, the map that we have in the hallway, that is where um, you'll see see all of our neighborhood parishes, which are just faithful groups of men and women um, meeting together during the week, sharing a meal, praying, opening scripture, and following Jesus in the context of everyday life. So I'd love to invite you to one of those uh, this week. Well, if you've been kind of traveling with us through Holy Week, you know that this is the the conclusion of the week. We, um, we started last Sunday with Palm Sunday, where we remembered the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Uh, Thursday night, we celebrated the Last Supper and remembered what that meant for the church and what that meant for Christ and His followers. Um, Good Friday, we celebrated and reflected on somberly the death of Jesus at the crucifixion. And so today doesn't happen in a vacuum. We, we kind of end the narrative of Jesus' last week. Uh, yesterday, even, we had a picnic and uh, remember the Sabbath, that the, j- the day that the di- disciples rested after everything that had gone on that week, and Jesus rested in the tomb. And then Sunday is here. Here we are, Easter Sunday, where we see that early in the morning, um, the, the faithful women who had followed Jesus come to anoint him with spices, and they find no body because he is risen. So, uh, amen indeed. Let's pray, and then we will, uh, we will read this text together. Jesus, we worship you in glory as you are right now, sitting on a throne with a heart pumping blood, with real resurrected flesh, and that you, as ruler of all, God of very God, God of the universe, sovereign over creation, that you would stoop down, become a man, die for your people, love us to such an extent, and then rise triumphantly over the grave. And in all of that, you would choose to know us and befriend us and love us and show us your mercy and compassion and grace. Lord, we can't fathom it, and so sometimes I admit and confess that I'm afraid, I'm anxious when faced with the truth of the resurrected Lord, but Lord, would you help us this morning translate that fear into confidence, the trembling into boldness, um, and the silence into courage as we... uh, Walk forth and proclaim that you are risen, you are risen indeed. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you've been, uh, even beyond Holy Week, if you've been walking with us for the last couple months, really since 
Christmas, we've been in Mark's gospel, the gospel according to Mark, who is a follower, is really a disciple of Peter. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but a, essentially scribing a firsthand account of Peter's life with Jesus. And we found that Mark is really quick. Mark uses the word immediately 41 times in his gospel. Mark is just kind of giving us the digest, the quickest digest he can of the life, miracles, teaching, and of course, the death and resurrection of Christ. And um, here it ends. It ends here in verse 8. You know, if you look in your Bible, it's likely that right after verse 8, it says um, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Um, I sent out a video this week, so I won't belabor this point, but we don't believe that the rest of that is really true to Mark. So we at Sojourn believe that, yeah, this, this gospel account really does end at verse 8, but that is a little uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable because Mark has been moving at this rapid-fire pace where the disciples are traveling from event to event to event, immediately going from one thing to the next. Jesus is moving really, really fast through the narrative accounts, and then all of a sudden, it just ends with silence and fear. It ends with silence and fear. And so, um, we got to think about this kind of whiplash that Mark's ending causes. If Mark ends here, which I believe it does, why does it end here, right? Mark, Mark and Peter through Mark are telling us something in the silence of the continuation of the narrative. I think it's something important. Uh, so let me read it again. Let's get our eyes on this text again together um, as we, as we um, start to unpack the significance of the ending of Mark's gospel. Uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices or bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Remember, this is these are three women, older women who are followers of Jesus, and there's this massive stone that's in front of the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Again, it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thus ends Mark's gospel. Right? This almost like, almost like the wind gets sucked out of the narrative, this continuous stream of Jesus' life and teaching and all the implications of that just ends with silence and trembling and fear. They don't say anything to anyone, we're told. Anyone. And so, I th okay, if this is the end of Mark's gospel, why does it end this way? Right? Like, We've said it multiple times this morning. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We say that with boldness and courage. And yet, there's fear and trembling and silence. Like, isn't this good news? Isn't, shouldn't they be exclaiming it and proclaiming it loudly to the world? What well, is good news? 
and we'll see why in a moment, but it's not what they expected, right? Like the text just tells us two keys to understanding what they expected. One, they had just purchased spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. Now, these are poor women. They followed Jesus for most of their lives, um, which means they weren't laboring anywhere else, making money, right? And so, they spend what little money they have on spices to anoint a dead body. And two, they fully expect the tomb to be closed. They're pondering on the way, we're going to have to figure out a way to open this tomb when we get there. Like, they're thinking, Maybe there'll be a guard that can help us, or maybe the three of us together can kind of get the stone moved enough that we can creep in. So they're not expecting what they find, which is an open tomb, and more a little alarming than an open tomb is instead of the stench of death, they walk in and see a a young man wearing a white robe, stainless white and he picks up on their tension. You know, they're, they're walking in the tomb, timid and probably anxious. And so he says to them, don't be alarmed, which doesn't work. They, they are still very alarmed, we're told. They leave with fear and trembling. But he tells them, don't be alarmed because the one who you seek, Jesus who died, is not here. See, there's where his body would be. He's not here. He is risen. Um. When our, so, they, they come with this expectation, right? They come with this expectation that they're going to find a body. Uh, it's the body of the one they love. They're going to, it's like, what, what would we expect if we went to the grave of a loved one to put flowers, to spend some time, maybe pray, maybe reflect, and leave? This isn't what they find. So, their expectations are unmet. And I think we get this, right? Like, when our expectations don't get met, something fills the gap of unmet expectations. Here's what I mean. Um, let's take, if we've got expectations here and they get exceeded, what fills the gap between what we expected and what we experienced? Well, usually, when our expectations are exceeded, we, we feel uh, joy, celebration, excitement, happiness, or even if we just have some basic expectations and they just get met, we're, we're at, at most kind of neutral, like, oh, well, that's what I expected. Or I'm pleased that my expectations were met. But what about when expectations aren't met, right? Like when we expected something um, or, or to find something or to have something or for someone to treat us in some sort of way. Um, often when our expectations go unmet or undermet, we fill the gap with fear, anxiety, depression, disappointment, right? Like when the person that we love and are praying for doesn't experience the healing that we hoped or expected, or the mother or father that we hoped would be there for us doesn't show up in the way we thought, or when a friend that we were counting on just turns out to be an acquaintance, or when the church lets us down, which will happen if you join Sojourn Montrose, for sure. Right? Like, we fill the gap with something, whether it's fear, anxiety, anger, disappointment. And, you know, largely I think this is, this is what's going on in our cultural moment in the West, right? Like, we live in one of the most anxious societies on the planet. And I think it's because we're inundated with messaging, whether social media or marketing or what have you, that's telling us our lives should be like this, and yet every day we're faced with a reality that's telling us 
my life's not like that. And so what do we, we fill it with anxiety. We're filling the gap of expectation. And so I think these followers of Jesus right here are filling a gap of unmet expectations with anxiety. But you might ask, like, wait, isn't Jesus being alive an exceeded expectation? Like, shouldn't that be exciting for them? Like, Jesus told them that he would raise from the dead, and he has. They're being told this right now. The angel's saying, he's risen. But again, they bought the spices. They were planning on how to roll the stone away. Like, their expectations were, it's going to be a pretty low-key day. We're going to go visit a grave. Um, by this point, it's been three days. And so, what has set into their hearts and minds, and really, they're, they're coming to grips with the fact that Jesus is gone, right? Saturday was a day of quiet and sadness, and they were probably thinking, maybe he was just a good prophet. Maybe he was just a teacher. I mean, even when Jesus is alive and telling them that he will die and raise up from the dead, they're kind of like, no, you won't. Like, what are you talking about? They don't get it. This is all the disciples constantly. That's why Jesus tells them, we talked about it a couple months ago, the messianic secret, the secret that Jesus is the Savior. He's constantly telling them, hey, like, you guys can't even handle this yet. So, like, don't, don't tell a lot of people yet because you're not going to be able to handle it. And I just think, like, put ourselves in their position, right? If we, found, if we were going to the grave again of a loved one to just spend some time and put some flowers down, and a person was there in a white robe and told us that they rose from the grave, I think even if I loved them dearly, I would celebrate eventually, but my first reaction would be terrifying. Like, what? This is, this is, this is anxiety-producing. It's not what I expected. When I think this is one of the best passages in my mind that gives us assurance of this gospel account that this firsthand account from Peter through Mark is real. Because if I were going to start a movement on a lie, I guarantee you I would not write that the people who found the grave were scared. I would write, and they were so confident, and they had confidence in what they believed, and they knew that whatever Jesus had said he was going to do, and so they went out with boldness and courage and proclaimed that he is risen. It's not what happened. Mark doesn't write that because that's not what happened. When we get to start to see, oh, oh, this is how humans act. Maybe this account is true. They were afraid. They were silent, just like I would be when faced with this, I think. I'd be afraid and trembling and silent. And so these women, they're sitting in fear, they're grappling with this truth that there is no body in the tomb, and this is the reality that's setting in. We've kind of touched on this, but I want us to walk through this a little bit. Um, they're, they're sitting there afraid, and what's setting in is this, this man that they've learned from, um, that they've eaten with, they've probably washed each other's feet. Um, they've been traveling with this man for years. And what's setting in is we've been with the God of the universe. Like we thought there was something special about him, but now we, we're finding out more and more and more. <laughs> this, this is different. He's not dead. He's alive. I think there's three realities that we are faced with, that they were faced with, right? Excuse me. Uh, first, 
They're recalling all of these moments they spent with Jesus, not only how they might have acted, which might have been embarrassing, uh, but they're, they're thinking, man, like everything he taught, everything he said, everything he did, it was all true, right? Like they might be recalling all the miracles and the teachings and the way he lived and the way he blessed people and the way he prayed for people. They'd be recalling him teaching about their sin and how all of us failed to measure up and how he would start teaching them about how he was sent to die in sacrifice for their sin, and that he was sent to die to pay for their sin, and that would start to settle in with them. Okay, we, we, we got all that. And then they would recall that he said that he would raise again right? And, and again, they've, they've already begun to mourn. They've already begun to digest that he's dead and gone, and maybe it wasn't true. But now that he's risen, it turns out it might be all true, which leads to the second reality that sets in, okay, it was all true. And second, he's not dead. He's alive. Okay, like, if he's alive, then what we thought was an ending is actually a beginning, We thought Jesus was dead. We thought this was over. We thought our life with him and learning from him and experiencing him in this way was over. And actually, it might be the beginning. And even scarier is this thought that he's out there somewhere. Like, where is he? He said he's going before them on the road to Galilee. And third, and this is kind of in line with this being a beginning, is this changes everything. Like, where do we go from here? What do we do now? Again, death wasn't the end. It's the beginning. So what, like, everything has changed. It seems like the fabric of the universe has taken a new course. If the dead can raise, and if Jesus is God and he rose, everything changes. It was all true. He's alive, and everything has changed. Those are the realities that are setting in for the disciples So, to me, their fear makes total sense. I mean, I think it's just human. But why, we still have the question, like, why does Mark's gospel end with their fear? And again, like, remember, Mark is, uh, his name's actually John Mark. He is mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. He's a disciple of Peter. And Peter is the same Peter that traveled with Jesus, that dined with Jesus, that denied Jesus on the day of the crucifixion, that's reinstated by Jesus through a meal. It's that Peter who is writing through Mark the gospel. He's literally like orating the gospel, and Mark's writing it. This is the same Mark in 1 Peter 5 that Peter calls my son, a very close discipleship relationship. So Peter gives Mark, uh, his spiritual son, his firsthand account of Jesus' life, death, teaching, and resurrection, and they end it with fear and silence. Well, th- this is um, the silence of what happens in this narrative would have been met by those in the early church. This is the, um, this is the earliest gospel to circulate, Mark is. It's the briefest earliest circulation. It happens in Peter's lifetime. Mark is in circulation before 70 AD. We know that Mark has been in circulation. Um, And so, what would happen is churches in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, in Rome, in North Africa, in Asia, 
would be reading Mark. We have evidence that they'd be reading Mark as Scripture in a church service, and they would end with verse 8, for they were afraid, and then they would look up at full rooms bursting with new Christians. And what that would communicate, it's, it's a brilliant communication in the silence. What it would communicate is somewhere along the line that all of us have experienced, this is them in the early church, is that that silence, that fear, that anxiety, that trembling dried up and boldness replaced it, and courage replaced it, and joy replaced it. The church, as this, after these disciples sit in fear and trembling and anxiety, what happens next, we have a count of in the Acts of the Apostles, it's called the Book of Acts, um, the New Testament writings, and the three other Gospels. What happens is that Jesus appears as risen Christ to the disciples. He gives them the charge to go make disciples of all nations. He ascends to heaven, and he, as- and he sends his Holy Spirit to empower them. And what happens is the church is like a little, a little pebble of snow that's pushed over a hill. It's like a snowball. It's gaining momentum and size through the fearful, doubting, scared disciples. Which again, it's not by their power that they're building a movement. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Mark is writing this to a church movement that's exploding. And every time it'd be written, they could fill the gap. But here we are. Listen to Peter's tone. So Peter, you know, he's a, he denied Christ at least once, possibly three times on the, the morning of the crucifixion. This is how Peter's tone has shifted from that moment to around AD 50, about 50 years later. Peter writes to the church, 1 Peter 1, 3, with this tone, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though do you not See him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that the inexpressible is filling you with joy, with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How do scared, trembling disciples transition from fearful doubters to emboldened, emboldened uh, fathers and mothers of the faith? Peter goes on to be crucified upside down as to not be crucified in the same manner of Christ. And he doesn't do that for a lie. He doesn't do that to protect a lie. What started as fearful, trembling, and afraid men and women worried about what might be next has now today become the biggest global movement and the most diverse global movement in the history of the planet. And we are a part of it. Here's what I want us to think about on Easter Sunday. Just like these women, just like the disciples, um, all of us are faced with a reality. There's an empty tomb somewhere in the Middle East. There is nobody there. Christ lived a real life on this planet. Um, 
He lived as both human and as God. He died a real death, hung on a Roman cross, alone and thirsty. He did so to die and pay for our sin. And by these accounts, he rose in victory over death itself. He walked out of the tomb, so we can't look there. We won't find him. He is risen indeed, we proclaim, with the global saints. He appeared to many. He ascended to the throne where he sits even now, ruling everything from the cosmos to the microbes. And in all of that power and glory and sovereignty, he appears to you now with a choice. Are you afraid of the living God? Good. Fear is an appropriate response. It's terrifying at first. What if it's all true? What if he's not dead but alive? What if this changes everything? Well, I'm here to tell you, it was true. He did rise from the dead. He's not dead. He's alive, and it does change everything. And if you're afraid to believe that, you're in very good company. You're in good company. But for all of us who have taken that step of faith, of belief, we also know that the Spirit has dried up the fear, dried up the doubt. I'm not saying it's completely gone. We still all experience some fear and some doubt. But how does all that dry up? It's because of love. Christ loves us. He died for us. He's gentle towards us. He's lowly. He's kind. He's gracious. He fills us with love, and he loves us through those who surround us in community by his grace. So for those who say, Lord, I'm afraid of what this might mean. I'm trembling thinking about what if all of this real, what would it look like to follow you? Will this change everything? His response is, come to me if you're heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Once that fear dries up, joy fills the gap by the power of the Spirit. Joy fills the gap. What do we do with all this? Well, we do what they were told. We go and tell. Christ goes before us by his spirit, so we go and tell with confidence, boldness, rest, and joy. We tell a sick and dying world that it's all true. He's not dead. He's alive. Death does not win, and this changes everything. Here's the way heaven experiences um, this truth. This is Revelation 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, I saw, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard among the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you, though we might be afraid, faced with a living God, an empty tomb. We worship you as Lord and Savior, loving, kind, gracious, peaceful, delivering rest. If there are any among us who are afraid right now of what it might mean to follow Jesus in a way that saves. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, usher in peace into their souls, and maybe, just maybe, they'd be bold enough to pray with me now. Lord, I don't know what it means. I know this might change everything, but I believe. I believe that you are Savior, that you saved me from my sin, and that you delivered me. And I believe you are Lord. I worship you as king and good, slaughtered lamb, bringing atonement and grace and love. Lord, I don't know what it means, but I, I'm starting to think I believe it's all true. I'm starting to think I believe that you are not dead. You are alive. And I do think that this will change anything, everything, and I'm afraid. But in my fear, Lord... I believe. Lord, if, if any prayed that, or if we, just the saints in the room, prayed it again, I pray that you would be near to us, that on this Resurrection Sunday, we boldly, joyfully, and courageously proclaim that you are risen, you are risen indeed. Would the truth of it be more apparent to us today than it was yesterday and tomorrow than it was today? We need you to make it so by your spirit. Embolden us to proclaim to the world not to be silent, but to proclaim that he is risen, that it was all true. He's alive. And this changes everything, and there's a day coming where all of it will be forever changed. We welcome you to hasten the day, Lord, but until then, we faithfully and boldly take up the mission. We pray this in your name. Amen.